I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. It's back to school time, and more than 500 institutions have started requiring coronavirus vaccines. Indiana University's vaccine mandate was recently upheld by a federal appeals court. And just a few days ago, a law professor sued George Mason University for requiring unvaccinated faculty and staff to wear masks and undergo frequent testing. On today's episode, we will explore the question, are vaccine mandates constitutional? I'm joined by two of America's leading experts on this question and on the U.S. Supreme Court case that is at the heart of the legal arguments, which is called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Josh Blackman is a constitutional law professor at the South Texas College of Law, Houston, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and president of the Harlan Institute. He's blogged on vaccine mandates of the Bollock conspiracy and is the author of the forthcoming article, The Irrepressible Myth of Jacobson. Josh, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Good to be back, Jeff. And Wendy K. Mariner is the Edward R. Utley Emeritus Professor of Health Law at Boston University School of Public Health and holds professorships in the School of Law and the School of Medicine. She is the co-author of many works on public health and constitutional rights, including Jacobson versus Massachusetts, It's Not Your Great-Great-Grandfather's Public Health Law. Wendy, thank you so much for joining. Delighted to be here. Let us begin with the challenge to Indiana University's vaccination mandate. Uh, the case is called Classen versus Trustees of Indiana University. Uh, the university required all faculty, students, and staff to have a COVID vaccine and be fully vaccinated or have an approved exemption before returning to campus. And the mandate was upheld by a district court and by the Seventh Circuit. Uh, Wendy, tell us about the core holding of the courts below, uh, namely that vaccination mandates are consistent with the Supreme Court case Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Well, the plaintiffs raised, uh, students raised a, uh, a, a kind of argument that Jacobson might have raised, which was uh, that the mandate violated their 14th Amendment quote, rights of personal autonomy and bodily integrity and the right to reject medical treatment. Both the district court and, as you pointed out, the Seventh Circuit rejected that claim um, on several grounds. The district court judge said, well, there was certainly no coercion here. Um, the students were not being forced to get vaccinated. They could find a new school or get a job elsewhere for the staff. Um, the Seventh Circuit agreed saying that while the plaintiffs claimed that Jacobson used a rational basis standard, it, of course, didn't. Uh, that was before the Supreme Court developed the tiers of scrutiny. Um, but the Seventh Circuit, Judge Easterbrook, interestingly, pointed out that universities require students to read and write things they would prefer not to, and that that's not a First Amendment violation. And he noted, and I quote, it's hard to see a greater problem with medical conditions that help all students remain safe while learning. I think they emphasize that there was no constitutional right to attend a particular institution and that vaccination um, is simply a condition of entry onto the campus. 
they have universities have eligibility standards, and this is one. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Josh, as Wendy points out, uh, there were holdings by the district court, which said that the vaccine mandate is a neutral rule of general applicability, and by the Seventh Circuit, where Judge Easterbrook wrote that the case is easier than Jacobson, Massachusetts, uh, for two reasons. Jacobson had no exception for adults. Uh, The Indiana University has exceptions for those who believe vaccinations are incompatible with their religious beliefs. And second, this is not a requirement for every adult member of the public, only those who attend the University of Indiana. People who don't want to be vaccinated can go elsewhere. What else can you tell us uh, descriptively about what the district court and the appellate court held about Indiana's vaccination mandate? Well, let's take a step back a little bit further, go to 1905. Constitutional law was in a very different place in 1905. Uh, the entire modern edifice of due process and equal protection and tiers of scrutiny simply did not exist. Um, Cambridge, Massachusetts enacted a policy that said if you fail to get vaccinated, you have to pay a $5 penalty. That was a criminal offense. Um, there's no actual requirement to get vaccinated. If you pay the $5 penalty, you could go on spraying smallpox to your community, but you have this $5 penalty. At the time... Many states had upheld school vaccination requirements, that if you want to attend a public school, you had to be vaccinated. But at the time, it was fairly novel for there to be a community-wide requirement. There have been decisions from North Carolina and Georgia upholding these. Um, Jacobson became the test case, so to speak, to the Supreme Court. And in a decision that's put seven to two by Justice Harlan, a judge that both you and I admire deeply, the court upheld the Cambridge policy. And this was very much a decision of the early 20th century. The court said, unless there's a, a clear and palpable violation of the Constitution, uh, the, the the courts will not get in the way. I think we should be very careful not to put too much weight onto Jacobson. This is a case that has not aged well, and it's inconsistent, inconsistent with a lot of precedent. Uh, the Supreme Court sort of recognizes in Calvary Chapel, Roman Catholic Diocese, that this is not a case you want to put a lot of weight on. Um, but for Indiana, you don't need to. Right? Even before Jacobson, courts across the country have upheld uh, vaccine requirements as a condition of school. Right, You're attending a school. It's a privilege. It's not a right. I think Wendy said that quite correctly. And the school can have various requirements. Um, so I don't think you need any sort of complicated issues. Um, it's also worth noting the Indiana policy had exemptions for disability and for religious exercise. I think there were nine plaintiffs, eight of them met religious exercise exemption. So there's only one person who sought to sue, who didn't meet either exemption. And he, unfortunately, did not prevail. He has to perhaps go somewhere else or get the shot. Uh, but I don't think Jacobson is necessary for the Indiana case. It's sort of just cited as background material, but it's it's the state um, saying conditions for attending a, a school. Thank you so much for that. Well, Wendy, Josh has put squarely on the table the Jacobson case, which both of you have written about. And in your article, it's not your great-great-grandfather's public health law, You argue that uh, invoking Jacobson, a law that authorizes mandatory vaccination during an epidemic of a lethal disease with refusal punishable by a monetary penalty like the one in Jacobson would be found constitutional, a law that authorizes mandatory vaccination to prevent dangerous, contagious diseases in the absence of an epidemic like a school immunization requirement upheld in 1922 by Justice Brandeis of all people also would probably be upheld. Uh, under certain conditions, but you say that the legitimacy of compulsory vaccination programs depends on both scientific factors and constitutional limits. Tell us more about those 
important arguments that you make in your article about Jacobson. Well, it's not simply the constitutional doctrine that governs. Constitutional doctrine has to be applied in the context of the disease. And so what you find is if you are vaccine mandates constitutional, you ask law professors and they say it depends. Uh, Some are and some may not be. It depends on really uh, scientific factors. The, you know, the the justification for requiring vaccination depends on several things. One is the prevalence of a contagious disease. A second is how easily it's transmitted, for example, through the air or by something that you touch, as smallpox was. Um, the severity of disease symptoms that arise if someone is infected. Um, no cure if there's no treatment available to provide it. And obviously the availability of an effective vaccine that can prevent transmission or serious disease. And in that case, in this case, the coronavirus meets all these conditions. At the time Jacobson was decided, vaccine development was in its infancy, of course. And um, there were some concerns and the (laughs) FDA wasn't even established until 1938. So we we have a long way from the situation scientifically and medically in 1905 from today. We have a lot more tools to um, protect people and prevent the transmission of illness. Thank you so much for that. Josh, do you agree with Wendy's argument that the constitutionality of various vaccine requirements turns on contextual factors, including uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine and, and health tests? And then tell us about your forthcoming article, The Irrepressible Myth of Jacobson, which is so buzzy that it uh, may have uh, been read at the Supreme Court where uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, invoked similar arguments in his recent piece about religious exemptions. Sure. Um, I'll be frank. I don't think Jacobson stands on very strong legs. And uh, with respect to Wendy, I think it's an old decision. Uh, Just to give you a sense, Jeff, Jacobson was decided two months before Lochner was decided. This was decided by basically the same court as Lochner. Um, of course, Lochner split five to four. This was seven to two. But constitutional law was in a very different place than the 1910s. It was just a very different world. Um, in the modern sense, substantive due process, the due process clause protecting rights, is viewed differently. We ask, is there a fundamental right? Uh, are there rights that are deeply rooted in tradition and history? Uh, uh, is there a violation of dignity, to use Justice Kennedy's favorite word? There are lots of tests that simply are not there in Jacobson. Um, I think the outcome is probably the same. I think under modern decisions like Washington v. Glucksburg and Cruzon and others, a substantive due process claim would probably fail. But let me just give you one caveat. I think the penalty has to be low. If this was a regime that re- that maybe Wendy has thoughts that, that resulted in endless incarceration, I imagine you were put in jail until you submitted to a shot. I think that would be harder to justify. Uh, maybe, maybe Wendy has thoughts. Uh, the fact that you only had a $5 penalty, I think is significant. Um, there was another case I mentioned, I think it was a North Carolina Supreme Court decision from the late 1800s, where a person would basically be kept in jail for 30 days until they got their shot and could be extended indefinitely. That I think would be tougher to justify. In other words, you're putting a person who's not vaccinated in a closed environment where they can spread COVID to the prisons, not a, not a good idea either, right? So I think there are actually some some serious issues of how the mandate's enforced. 
Um, I think you should also consider people who have natural immunity. This is the issue that um, is raised in the Virginia case. Uh, people who might pr- plausibly claim they have natural immunity may uh, have better protection than someone who gets, you know, the Chinese vaccine, the Sinopharm, right? Uh, so the, there are some perhaps plays in the joints over how this is enforced, right? All laws must be rational. If a policy lacks rationality, then even courts might be skeptical of it. Um, I hope it doesn't get to it. I hope no jurisdiction acts a vaccine mandate because it'll just be held up in court forever. But I don't think that Jacobson holds on. I do think there's a bit of a myth surrounding the case that that just will not seem to seem to fade. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Wendy, uh, do you agree with Josh that uh, although uh, Jacobson might allow for low-level fines, it would not allow for coerced vaccinations. Um, And then Josh introduces this uh, Virginia case where uh, Professor Todd Zwicky has said that he already had COVID. Um, He uh, has antibodies against it, and therefore the George Mason policy requiring unvaccinated faculty and staff members uh, to wear masks and physically distance themselves uh, is coercive and can't be considered anything other than an unlawful mandate. There's no compelling interest in overriding his personal autonomy rights, and it's poorly calibrated to protect public health. What do you think of the contextual claims that uh, Professor Zwicky raises in the Virginia case? Well, let me take your first question first um, and deal with the question of natural immunity second. Um, You might be surprised that I uh, agree with Josh that perhaps that it is that the Jacobson case is not what many people assume it to be, and that particularly people in public health often assume that it provides justification for almost any kind of law governing that has a goal ultimately of governing public health or improving public health. It is uh, a really a, a case of first impression. It was really perhaps the first case before the United States Supreme Court that actually um, dealt with mandatory restrictions on an individual's personal liberty for public health purposes. There had been cases about police power that was really, really, really jurisdictional disputes between the federal and state governments, and a few cases involving regulation of businesses imposing health and safety regulations in places like mining. But this was really an issue of individual, um, regulating an individual. And I do think that it has been bandied about, usually in a string site, without much attention to the context. Um, And it may be, I think, what Cass Sunstein has called a a narrow and shallow case, that it applied to a narrow set of circumstances, and it didn't have a lot of doctrinal um, underpinnings that could be applied elsewhere. It's just too general, like almost any case of first impression. Uh, That said, I think it does raise questions that are timeless about the scope of state power and the scope of individual liberty. The hard question in these cases that we talk about in class a lot is, so what would your enforcement mechanism be? Jacobson must have been a very easy case, actually, since no one was forced to get vaccinated. And there certainly is um, an enormous amount of reluctance, both in the in the population and in the judiciary to forcibly impose um, uh, medical conditions and, and you know, shots and drugs on people, with some exceptions um, in psychiatric institutions, and often with 
Well, I'll leave that for another day. <laughs> Josh, so we're talking about a bunch of different constitutional cases, and, and maybe you can disaggregate them for our listeners and, and tell us what you think about them. You've said that the Jacobson case, which said that uh, this Massachusetts could fine an individual for not being vaccinated, um, no longer uh, it would be at the center of the Supreme Court's considerations and instead invoked cases like the Cruzan case, which said that people do have a right to refuse unwanted medical treatment, and the Glucksburg case, which said that in deciding whether or not there is a right to die, the court will carefully look at history and tradition in evaluating uh, whether there should be new substantive due process rights. Those are rights protected by the Liberty Clause that uh, protect substantive liberties. So, so given all that, how do you think the current Supreme Court would and should analyze the constitutional claims about various vaccination uh, requirements? Well, again, I think we have to be very careful to distinguish different categories. If we're talking about the privilege of attending a school, um, I think there's going to be more deference because people aren't required to attend a particular school. Uh, tenured employees may have a different situation because they have a right to teach and they're being penalized for something that was not in their employment contract. It may actually be a greater claim for a professor than for a student because professors, you know, we're kind of stuck at our universities. But if there's actually a jurisdiction that mandates vaccines, I think those are very vulnerable. They actually have to get it. You know, they'll strap you to a gurney and put a needle in your arm. Uh, there's also sort of a middle area. Look at New York City. Uh, Mayor de Blasio has instituted a new policy. Um, unvaccinated people cannot go to restaurants, theaters, gyms, or any other public places. Um, this is severe. Uh, historically, we've said people have a right to travel. That is, people don't need papers, so to speak, to go from point A to point B. And, and, and now they very well may. Uh, there's long been a policy of quarantining those who are sick um, and restricting people, for example, come on a boat or otherwise. But now a person can't walk across the street to a restaurant if he's fully masked and unvaccinated. Um, there will probably be constitutional litigation over this policy as well. Um, I, I, I am skeptical. Um, the mayor of Boston um, actually compared uh, these sort of uh, policies to, to, to slave traffickers that you have to show your papers move from point A to point B. There's a dark history here. Um, uh, so I, I think these policies might be vulnerable. Wendy, uh, Josh raises the possibility of restrictions on travel uh, at the end of July. Um, President Biden uh, reportedly uh, considered requiring all civilian federal employees to be vaccinated or uh, be forced to submit to regular testing, social distancing, and restrictions on most travel. And Josh also mentioned um, some restrictions in New York. As, as you look at the range of vaccine requirements that states and the federal government are considering, are there any that you think might come close to uh, the constitutional line? Well, I think we have to look at what the alternatives are. Um, we are, we have been and continue to be in a very severe epidemic and pandemic around the world. The United States has had 630,000 deaths from COVID. That's dramatic. That's remarkable. Um, what are our options? Uh, our options are basically to try and prevent transmission any way that's, that is feasible and fair. And our options are essentially vaccination, social distancing, maxing, ma mask wearing, or quarantine. You want to go back to the ancient use of quarantine, which has never been terribly successful except on an island. 
um, which may be the only alternative to restrict you know, the ability of a person to interact with the public and perhaps get infected and put others at risk. We really do have a problem with, um, with options if we can't use the best option that we have, which is vaccination. Josh, uh, would a federal vaccine mandate of any kind be unconstitutional and which constitutional provisions might it uh, violate? So far, we've been talking about state mandates and states have something called a police power, which is this sort of broad brooding omnipresence in the sky, so to speak, that they can do a lot of things. Sorry, couldn't help it. I'm on the podcast with Jeff Rose and I have to make a Holmes reference. Um, the federal government does not have a general police power. They have a uh, what's called enumerated powers, only those powers given. If Congress wants to do something, they'd have to find a specific grant in Article One of the Constitution. Um, perhaps they might look to the international, the Foreign Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause. I think they'll be looking in vain. Um, we know from the Obamacare case that mandates are unconventional. There are not many federal mandates to buy a product. There are no mandates I'm aware of to make regular people get a shot in their arm by virtue of simply existing. Um, even though it would prevent the spread of disease from state A to state B, I am not confident this sort of mandate would survive constitutional review. Um, I think it would be very vulnerable. Uh, but let's be frank here, we don't have that statute, right? If President Biden wanted to actually enact this policy, you would have to rely on general CDC authority to, to restrict pandemics. And I don't think these, the, the statute that exists could stretch quite that far. Uh, this is actually the same law that supports the eviction moratorium, which a majority of the court thinks is un, is illegal. So I think a federal vaccine mandate is a non-starter. Biden said he had asked uh, DOJ for an opinion on one, then he quickly walked that back. So I think we're, we're not going to see it. Wendy, do you agree that a federal vaccine mandate would be a non-starter uh, constitutionally and under existing statutory authority? And then tell us about the statutory authority that does currently exist. On July 26th, the Office of Legal Counsel issued an opinion saying that COVID vaccination emergency use authorization status under the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act doesn't prevent public and private entities from imposing vaccine requirements. Uh, the legitimacy of that opinion is at issue in the Virginia case. To what degree does the Emergency Use Authorization Act provide authority for public and private entities to impose vaccination requirements? Well, the, the um, emergency authorization uh, d uh, does not impose any requirement as to use. It simply authorizes its sale and distribution. Uh, so I don't think that that's terribly, um, that, that would not be a basis for uh, requiring anyone to take the vaccine. It simply authorizes its, its, its distribution. And it simply does so by uh, authorizing production at the same time that the studies are being carried out. So it's a faster method. It's a faster route to getting the vaccine out once it is uh, established as safe and effective, which it has been under that category. The constitutionality of a, a federal requirement for vaccination, I think, would depend greatly on who it's imposed on. Um, certainly, the commerce power could authorize some kind of a condition with respect to businesses that could pose a risk of transmission. I, I think that would be possible. Um, imposing on individuals, I think, is on slightly shakier ground, although 
in the Comstock decision, um, there, there, there was a citation that in cases of epidemics, perhaps we could impose that kind of obligation on, on an individual. So I, I, think it's a, I think it's an open question. I do think that um, we do have a tradition of lodging these kinds of requirements at the state level. That does make a mess of things, however, as we see today with varying kinds of requirements and resistance or acceptance in different legislatures and different governor's offices in different states. Uh, Josh, there are other constitutional complaints at issue in the Virginia case involving George Mason University, including unconstitutional conditions. Uh, Tell us about those and what you think about those arguments. Sure. And I should note that I attended George Mason about a decade ago, and I know Todd's wiki very well, although I haven't actually talked to him about this case. Um, There's a doctrine in constitutional law called unconstitutional conditions. And the idea is you should not have to surrender a constitutional right to get some sort of government benefit. You know, for example, if you want to live in public housing, could you waive your Fourth Amendment rights? That is, they could drug test you anytime. They could search your apartment for contraband, right, if you want to live in public housing. And the general rule is that's not a good idea, that, that the government can't make you surrender your constitutional rights as a condition of some public benefit. And Zwicky argues that he has a constitutional right to avoid these sort of vaccines, given his immunity, his natural immunity. And in light of these facts, the government can't force him to uh, give up those rights as a condition of his public employment. Um, it's a very unique argument, and I don't think I've seen it in this exact context before because he's a public employee. Um, he's tenured, which is a, effectively a binding contract, which we all have as professors. And he's saying that as a condition of his employment, he's being asked to surrender his constitutional rights. Um, now, professors have their rights to bridge all the time. You know, I can't go up in front of the classroom and start, you know, projecting child pornography on the board, right? I can't go up in front of my class and start libeling people, right? Those are not protected activities. Um it's a tougher call if there's something that is protected by the Constitution, and then my employer says, you cannot do that um, in terms of my speaking and publishing. Um, I suppose a countervailing argument is that there might be students in, in Zwicky's class who are uh, hesitant to enter the building if they know he's not vaccinated. And also Zwicky said he doesn't think he can teach effectively with a mask on, which impedes the ability to perhaps prevent spread. I, I don't know how this case will shake out. Um, you know, it, it's it's a fairly fast-moving issue, and who knows, by the time this goes to summary judgment, uh, the Delta pandemic has subsided, and, you know, we, we've sort of moved on. Um, you know, it's also possible that Zwicky's immunity drops at some point, and, and the case gets mooted out, so to speak. So I don't know how this one shakes out. I think it's, it, it's, it's a heavy lift, but uh, I do think he does raise some fair points about the rationality of a policy uh, that's sort of a one-size-fits-all. You know, one argument he raises uh, the single Johnson Johnson shot might be less effective than, say, two shots of Pfizer, right? Yet all vaccines are treated equally. Uh, you might have a foreign student who has a Chinese vaccine, which is not very effective at all. And that be the Chinese vaccine might be less effective than natural immunity. So this sort of one-size-fits-all policy is not actually consistent with science, as people like Wendy actually know. They know science. I don't know science. But there might be some difficulties. But is it for the courts or the elected branches to make those calls? Uh, Wendy, what do you think about the argument about unconstitutional conditions in the Virginia case? And then walk us through how you imagine constitutional litigation about the vaccines uh, playing out over the next couple uh, months, including issues involving religious exemptions. Um, In Indiana, uh, there was an exemption for those who believe that vaccination are incompatible with their religious beliefs. This Supreme Court is 
sensitive to claims of religious exemptions? Do you imagine that any of those claims might be successful for vaccine requirements that don't have religious exemptions? Well, first to the um, to, to the, the claim about natural immunity. That's that's a very interesting question because it is it is a question for science and not necessarily one that can be decided by the um, by the judiciary on the basis of knowledge of constitutional law. It's not at all clear um, to me that natural immunity is established permanently once one has had COVID. In fact, there's a lot of question about that and about fading immunity. Uh, so it's. It's a question I think that it would be very hard to base a win on the claim that one need not be um, one need not be vaccinated because one has already had COVID. Uh, secondly, the idea that all vaccines are equal may not last. This is a fast-moving uh, pandemic, and there are um, places in which the Chinese version of the vaccine is not accepted is adequate for entry into a university or a business. So it, again, depends on the reality uh, on the ground. So how, how, would, how would that matter? Well, you can, I mean, one of, the, one of the problems that we have, I think, in this country is that most of the statutory bases for emergency action have been written for short-term emergencies, like hurricanes or floods or explosions and things like that. Uh, often given giving the governor a 30-day period for uh, you know for exercising emergency authority, we really haven't confronted how to deal with a long-standing pandemic for over 100 years, and we're in a much better scientific and constitutional position for that. So it means that we really have very very little in the way of adequate precedent that fit what's going on now. We have a a pandemic that has waxed and waned and is waxing again. And we may have uh, a need for revaccination of people who have been vaccinated in order to keep um, to, to keep the population safe. So the, the, the questions that are confronting us are really quite, I think, new in many respects and relying on the idea that either one individual can refuse because he thinks he has natural immunity or another individual can refuse um, because he just doesn't like it, tends to turn the whole purpose of society on its head. We need to be able to take action that indeed protects the whole population um, as long as we don't ultimately harm the individuals that we're trying to protect. Josh, tell us, uh, your view about the future of religious exemptions and COVID. You wrote uh, posts about Jacobson in Massachusetts based on your Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy article, The Essential Free Exercise Clause. You subsequently blogged that Justice Gorsuch's reading of Jacobson uh, seemed to track your uh, posts when, when, when he found uh, religious exemptions in the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn case. So unpack for our listeners what that debate was about, and then tell us whether you imagine any claims about religious exemptions being successful moving forward. Well, who is Jacobson? Uh, he was a Swedish minister who lived in Cambridge at the turn of the century. Um, he had actually been vaccinated earlier in his youth, and he had an adverse reaction to it. And also Jacobson's son had a vaccination, apparently, who had an adverse reaction as well. Uh, this basically 
uh, Wendy, correct me. I think you basically got a, a version of cowpox, which was a variant of smallpox, and that's how it was done. It was basically a different disease that could could inflict harm to people. Perhaps in the aggregate, it was worthwhile. Um, during the COVID nineteen pandemic, governors across the country cited Jacobson in the various challenges to house of worship restrictions, and a lot of people simply assumed that this was a religious case. He was a minister, after all. Um, I've gone back, I read the trial record, I read the appellate record, I read the Supreme Court record. There was no reference whatsoever to the religion clauses, with good reason. They weren't incorporated yet. The free exercise clause had no bearing on the case. It was based entirely on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, as well as the Massachusetts state constitution. He also had some takings clause issues that were rejected out of hand, but it was almost all based on the 14th Amendment. Um, during the COVID pandemic, lots of judges said, aha, we have this case, Jacobson, which says that religious claims have to be subjugated to public health. Wrong, 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 wrong. It had nothing to do with religion. And it was woefully inconsistent with modern free exercise clause jurisprudence. Um, Chief Justice Roberts cited Jacobson in South Bay, a very prominent case upholding California's lockdown measures. And then a few months later, we get to Roman Catholic diocese. And Robert sort of tiptoes away, sort of back to saying, well, I didn't really mean Jacobson had much to do with it. And then Gorsuch had an opinion that was very consistent with what I wrote. And he said, this is not a case affecting free exercise clause. So even if you have Cruzan and cases like Glucksburg, substantive due process, those cases might be weak. But a free exercise clause case is much harder to prevail. Um, judges cited Jacobson in a case involving the Second Amendment, right? You had states that had to shut down all gun stores to prevent spread of COVID. And they said, ah, Jacobson, but that's not a case about an enumerated right. Uh, governors cited it for abortion. They said, ah, we need to stop all forms of uh, uh, certain types of abortions because we have to save surgical supplies. Uh, you know, the modern abortion jurisprudence post-dates Jacobson by, you know, eight decades or so. Uh, so these are these are very contemporary issues with a large body of case law, and judges sort of just reached to Jacobson as this panacea, saying, yes, we defer, we defer. I blame John Roberts in large part, I blame him for a lot of things, but I blame him for this. Uh, his, his, his citation of Jacobson was, was repeated hundreds of times in the country. So look, there, we have a lot of case law. The Supreme Court will have to address it at some point. I think a lot of judges just sort of what did you say, Wendy, a string site? They sort of cited Jacobson in a string site and just called it a day. And I think was was not a good exercise in jurisprudence. Wendy, can you imagine any challenges to vaccine requirements uh, of any kind on, on religion grounds being successful moving forward and, and looking forward to the next couple of months? Are there any other vaccine challenges that you imagine being successful under the Constitution? Well, yes, I, I think that is entirely possible. What the Supreme Court has done, even in the shadow docket, but certainly in the Tandon case and <clears throat> the Cuomo case and in the South Bay cases, has been to elevate um, the the idea of religious free exercise ab above all other, it seems, constitutional protections. Uh, and I find that a little disturbing, only because the Supreme Court refuses to decide what counts as a religious belief, which is understandable, but that leaves the court in the position of um, essentially acquiescing to an, an individual's perception of religion that can indeed undermine, you know, regulations that help the entire public. I'm thinking of what the implication of these cases as precedent are for 
all kinds of health and safety regulations from inspections to, um, you know, to protections for workers, all these kinds of things. These cases have, have essentially shifted um, the, the standard of review for uh, religious exceptions to probably all kinds of regulation. And that I think is a, a, far, more, a far more concern than might be a simple exception to a vaccine mandate. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Josh, as you look forward over the next couple of months, this is a fast-moving situation, of course, but um, what, if any, challenges to vaccine requirements do you imagine being successful and and which constitutional legal provisions do you think uh, they'd be based on? I think the only institutions that will have constitutional challenges are public universities, and I think they're probably going to lose. I think the Eastbrook opinion is probably right. Um, if private employers impose vaccine mandates, they'll have to deal with the American Disabilities Act and uh, uh, the if it's to stay with the RIFRA, Religious Restoration Act, there may be issues there. But I think those claims are going to probably fall away as well. Um, the federal government that's imposing a, a um, uh, the vaccine mandate may be trickier. There may be some organized labor cases. Unions may oppose it, which has nothing to do with the Constitution. Uh, but again, I think as a condition of employment, it's harder, right? Um, the the policy may may have problems. So I I don't think we'll see any sort of one size fits all challenge. I think the most likely case we'll get actually concerns the um, eviction moratorium, which will perhaps scale back the CDC's power. And once that power is scaled back, the idea of a national vaccine mandate is not going to take her off. Uh, we may see litigation over the New York City travel passport issue. That one. Uh, is curious because his right to travel has never been clearly defined. I think that actually may have some legs. Thank you very much for that. Well, uh, it's time for closing arguments in this illuminating discussion. Um, if any of those cases uh, Josh mentioned materialize, we will podcast on those. But let us uh, close by returning to the Indiana case. Uh, Wendy, tell we the people listeners uh, whether you believe that the lower courts were correct to hold that Indiana's requirement that all students, faculty, and staff have a COVID vaccine and are fully vaccinated uh, violates the Constitution or not? I, I think it does not. I, I'm not convinced that the the decision was terribly well-reasoned, but I think the result was correct, and I think that the Seventh Circuit should uphold it, um, perhaps with better writing. Thank you for that. And Josh, uh, same question to you. As you have the last word in this in this good conversation, uh, should courts uphold uh, the Indiana University vaccine mandate or, or not, and why? I think the the Indiana law passes muster. It has religious exemptions, it has disability exemptions, um, and I think given those exemptions, it's hard to challenge under modern doctrine. Thank you so much, Wendy Mariner and Josh Blackman, for a civil, uh, illuminating, and uh, collegial discussion about the hotly contested question of vaccine mandates and the Constitution. Wendy, Josh, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott and engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Amy Liu, Olivia Gross, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional education and debate. And always remember, dear We The People friends, 
that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the passion, the generosity, and the dedication to lifelong learning from people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.